Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is another dispatch from Sundance. Uh, from Sundance means wherever we happen to be. For this edition, I'll start with uh, with someone who hasn't been on these so far, a critic who we talked with a couple episodes ago. Um, pleased to have him back for the Sundance edition. Please welcome Nicholas Russell. Welcome, Nicholas. Hey there. Thanks for having me back. Where are we reaching you f- from? Same place as last time. I'm still in Vegas. <laughs> In, it's like eight o'clock in the morning. So, <laughs> I guess in, in a sense, you're closer to the temporal uh, spirit of, of Sundance being on, on the West Coast. I'll tell myself that you're, you're reporting alive in a way. <laughs> <laughs> and also joining us, Eric Hines. Hey, Nick. Hello, Nick and Nick. <laughs> well, uh, let's maybe let's just start. Nicholas, you were talking a little bit before uh, we started recording about just how you're watching movies and you're also seeing people have these introductions, which actually I should know whether they're canned or live. I think they're live, but there also is a somewhat confined quality to some of them. But I've, I've been looking at this forensically. I'm going to interject here. I believe <laughs> the I believe the intros are pre-recorded, if not days before, and the Q&As are live. Ah, okay. interesting. It's interesting because like there you wouldn't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. So the intros I've seen so far, and this is true for the premieres that I'm watching like live and the like second screenings that I'm watching like the day or two days after the fact is like they're on Zoom. So there's already a quality of like it's as if it's happening right in front of you. And I'm sure there's too many entries for them to like have properly gone in and edited them to like take out any weird awkward pauses or like yeah people interrupting each other like the first movie i saw was coda that first intro was like rife with like the moderator interrupting the director but not because they were being rude but just because there were like communication issues and it was just like it was unfolding in such a increasingly like anxiety inducing way it was like oh my god i had a gig for a long time where i actually had to cover the q a's and i always found it frustrating that sundance of all places their Q&As felt largely unmoderated. It became just like an opportunity for the audience to jump right in, mm. no matter what the film was, no matter what the context that people were being entered into after the film. Mm. Um, and I actually find that the Q&As this year round feel more worthwhile because the moderators, you kind of have to have a series of questions to start off. It just doesn't make sense to go right to a chat room yeah. um, uh, you know, or, or whatever, a chat box. One sort of negative of that is that the, the people who normally go to Sundance Q&As at this point expect to be able to talk immediately to the stars. And so I noticed in the chat boxes, there's there's a lot of pushback. There's a lot of, uh, I saw something yesterday morning where it's like, I attended a screening last night and it would be great if, unlike the moderator last night, you went immediately to our questions. We didn't come to this for the moderator to ask all the questions. <laughs> so it's incredible to see. I don't know, Nick, I don't know if we're derailing this episode, but like, I like, as, <laughs> as, as someone who hasn't been to Sundance and who's only been to like a total of three film festivals, it's, it's increasingly interesting to me. So the one film festival I've been to in person was New York Film Festival. And that one was like, interesting because i'm sure it's by no means like representative of a lot of them but there's like an in-person quality specifically with the clickishness of certain critics that mm. you like see in person like specifically right. when you see groups of people hanging out before or after a screening and then like yeah. the day of or the day after you see the review and 
you can see them either parroting each other or like they're the really big critics who kind of like determine the like buzz of a movie. And it's so interesting here where it's like, they're all in the chat and they're like, just saying, (laughs) they're just saying stuff. That's like, why are you, wouldn't you want to wait until you publish something that like tells someone (laughs) else about this opinion rather than being like, yeah, no, I saw this and like, it was fine. But like, it wasn't like, I was just like, it seems so like high school, like, I'm just like, everyone can see what you're saying. I guess, like, maybe they don't care. But, like, it's just like going through the chat at one point before one of the movies I saw, like, in the waiting room, I was just, like, scrolling through what people were saying. There was two kinds of comments. It was either they were listing what they had already seen without any commentary. They are just like, yeah, I've seen this, blah, 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 blah. Or they were like, hey, like, this is what I thought of it. I'm going to write about this, but, you know, like, don't tell anyone. It's like, well, what, what are you talking about? You're, you are telling everyone. It's like being on Twitter, except that you know that this version of the chat is going to be, like, used for posterity. I don't know. Could it be used against you? Like, it just seems like a really, like, weird facet of the festival sort of circuit there's a real economy to it yeah what you're saying of course happened on on the ground too like who's going to get the first tweet out as soon as the lights go down to see people do that from their homes of course you know that they've written it for hours yeah and they're waiting for it to end before they send it forward but but the, the the currency of it is like people are just acquiring right so on one hand everyone's just acquiring titles and they're letting you know what they're acquiring yeah and on the other hand they're inflating or deflating the value of the thing based on their comments. Like that's whether or not anybody's admitting it, that's what they're doing. They're not looking to have a conversation about what they're seeing. They're looking to kind of contribute to the economy. Yeah. It's like, cause so I'm writing again for reverse shot and like I'm doing a couple dispatches. And like one of the things that I told my editor was like, I did not want to do it like a day of or day after like filing a review just cause like I need more time to think about it. And also Mm -hmm. we're watching so many movies a day that it's like, it doesn't seem fair to the movie you just watched or the movie you're watching after it to be like, yeah. So like (laughs) the first viewing and like the current, like present moment of the viewing is like the most salient opinion that you have. That can't be true. It seems antithetical to like good criticism to be like, yeah, my first impression was the right one. Like, it might have been, but like you should probably think about it a little more. Like, so. of course. <laughs> and, and I gotta say, I don't want to speak for Nick, but that that that's sort of how we wound up with doing podcasts at Sundance years ago, which is like none of us wanted to do dispatches, but we felt like maybe we could sort of have a first pass by talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge part of it. I mean, that's it's basically this makes it sound pretentious, but for me, it's just basically kind of like a lab or something, or just, I don't know, just sort of where it's like a first draft or even just notes, you know, I mean, no one's going to hold anyone to what first impressions here. And, 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 and Nicholas, I think, I, I hope someone like transcribes what you said, because that was just like the most concise <laughs> takedown of the yeah. entire, you know, instant review culture that dominates, I guess, partly because of industry demands. Um, but not everyone has to do that. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Nevertheless, I really hope that we can submit letter grades by the end of the podcast. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> letter grades and uh, yeah, high 90 and 91, you know, we can also do number grades, you know, because yeah, Jesus good. Christ. It's not, we're, it's not pitchfork. <laughs> we can't do like... <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's get into let's get into the movies. Eight for Silver uh, was certainly mm. kind of uh, tantalizing. 
So A for Silver is interesting in that it wasn't it wasn't a midnight screening, but it should have been. In that, like, it was a premiere, like it was a straight up premiere. Sean Ellis, the writer director, has had a previous midnight section like premiere, but this is like the first including the midnight section films i've seen so far this is like the first out and out total genre movie that i've seen at the festival so far and like i think for so many of these movies i'm going in kind of blind kind of on purpose just to like be surprised by what i'm seeing and so the the main little blurbs that they have like for on the Sundance like program site kind of all I know about the movies and then I do a little research afterwards just to just to hear the filmmakers or the actors talk about it so for A for Silver I was like okay it's cool like it's like a period piece it's got Boyd Holbrook who I like in the like starring role you know it sounds like a weird sort of British more gothic kind of thing and then we get to the like sort of premiere to uh, intro and the first thing that the moderator says is like, we're so excited to like bring you this different take on the werewolf myth. And I was like, whoa, what? <laughs> it's cool. I, I think like on the whole, I, I really, really liked the movie. I, it was the first movie I watched where I wasn't taking notes during it, <laughs> where I was just kind of like, wow, I'm just going to let this wash over me. It's extremely gory. <laughs> There's like many a limb being chopped off, but the take or like a reworking of the sort of classic werewolf myth is interesting because it repurposes a lot of the things that come with it, you know, silver and curses and the werewolf itself and like what it looks like and like the sort of anatomy of it is played with in interesting ways. I've seen a few people in early sort of like comments about the movie are comparing it sort of to Alien. There's definitely a a, a more scientific-ish basis for the creature design it's a movie that was obviously made on a budget in terms of its visual effects which like sean ellis like you can tell he knows that and and shoots it very economically where he's getting the most he can out of like the practical effects of the movie there's like a slightly tried part of the mythology that's there where there's the whole like romany gypsy curse thing that still happens the intention, I think, is probably to make it more about humanizing them and talking about like how like English colonialism and sort of imperialism has driven them from their homes and how they can never lay, lay claim legitimately to land and how like there is like a racist sort of ethnic quality to the way that they're treated. The movie is definitely on the quote unquote side of these people but they are used as the setup for the main part of the movie in a well-staged <laughs> it's a weird thing to say it's a well-staged massacre they are the impetus for the curse that like comes in the movie and as sort of like well shot and sort of empathetically written you're still seeing brutalization of like a marginalized people that then do not come back in the movie like there's no point where it's like and then they were given their land back it's like no like they're all dead <laughs> and like that's kind of it they, the movie sort of like drops that in a way that is interesting to examine just like why that trope keeps coming up because it's you know it's in the original wolfman there's like the gypsy and it's even in the 
the like remake with Joe Johnston and Benicio del Toro, there's still like this Roman gypsy sort of component to the myth that is exoticized to varying degrees. And I think Sean Ellis tries his best to not do that here, but then it just begs the question of like why it's there at all. I think the next step in that is just to take it out completely or to have it be from their perspective. Cause that's another telling thing too, is like the heroes of the movie are also the same group of people who are the villains of the movie. <laughs> and so even at the end, when like, when things resolve, I won't say how they resolve. It's still like, it's still their story. So hmm. um, that was something I was left lingering thinking about, but like on the whole, it's like one of my favorite movies that I've seen so far. Yeah, that's it's interesting. If for some reason it, it reminds me a little of a, a discussion we had basically about how how self-awareness works with with horror movies or other or genre mm-hmm. movies and how far it goes and, and what happens when it, it doesn't really kick in to, to the full extent one might expect at a certain point in, yeah. in history. If someone made this movie, you know, from what you're describing, like 40 years ago, maybe mm-hmm. one wouldn't notice that as much. Uh, yeah, it's almost a question of, yeah, what's what's the self-awareness to that? Is this also why it wasn't like explicitly a midnight movie? Yeah, it's interesting too, because it's like, if it had been made 30 years ago, I think people would have been like, wow, this is like a really progressive version of this kind of movie. And like, I, I go back and forth about whether or not these things are like, you know, legitimate industry-wide sort of concerns, or if it's just like fashion, and they're like, kind of like, okay, this is the thing that people want to see in their kind of, in this kind of movie. It's like a, it's a sort of reworking sort of like social view of, you know, the werewolf myth or something. And to Sean Ellis's credit, he is aware of that from seemingly a a genuine place, but doesn't belabor the point. I, I don't know. I think there's, it's a fine line between making a genre movie that tries to do something new and bring in like sort of more modern concerns into the plot and like sort of thematic lines and doing something that's like an outright sort of like, this is a reclaiming of this thing and like having there be like some really ham fisted socially conscious dialogue or like plot points that like totally derail the like benefits of like having that movie begin that genre in the first place. And I feel like, Sean Ellis is more interested in like old school sort of like special effects kind of like horror in a way that's fun, I think. And like is what makes the movie so enjoyable is that there he's like really great at setting that kind of stuff up. He's really great at doing shooting and like creating and evoking an atmosphere that carries through the whole movie. And like the sort of ingenuity of the mythology that he has is like so interesting from multiple perspectives that it's kind of like the movie is both too long and too short because it like focuses on certain things over others that there are certain parts that are more interesting than others. And it sometimes feels like he's focusing on the less interesting things and the more interesting things are like throwaway lines, which can tends to happen in horror movies. I feel like <laughs> they mm, like, yeah. they like they belabor the point about like, this is why this happened, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, okay, great. And then there's like, Oh yeah, and then like this character's backstory, they used to do this, and it's like, wait, what? Like we're just gonna <laughs> we're just gonna like skip over that? That's like wild. Like we that could be like a whole other movie. Right. I think one of the largest takeaways too, and this is this is nothing of substance, but I think would have taken me out of the movie even more is that Boyd Holbrook is playing a British person and his British accent is pretty good. So um <laughs> I didn't fuss over it, so I was like, okay, cool. Right. Right. <laughs> 
No, not to be not to be underestimated the amount that that can that can take you out of a movie, and and a little bit the reverse too. Uh, British actors not really nailing any particular American accent. Yeah, like Benedict Cumberbatch. Like, no offense to him. Like, I like him well enough, but his his American accent sounds like no American person I've ever met. So. <laughs> yeah, I would I would yeah. add you and McGregor to that pile. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that's eight for silver, uh, which uh, yeah premiered just just recently on the weekend. Maybe it makes sense. We'll st- we'll stick with the historical um, this historical thread and talk about a movie that's uh, takes place in the 1920s, and that is Passing, uh, which is Rebecca Hall's feature film directorial debut, and is adapted from a I guess you'd say no- novella by Noah Larson. The story is about two women who are passing as white in like 1920s New York. That's like the main gist of it and where the like title comes from. But it is, you know, it's a it's about more things than that. <laughs> you know, and I, and I would just add to that one one is married to a black man, another is married to a white man, and their experiences in passing are obviously very, very different and defined by that. Um, but there's also elements of them at a certain socioeconomic level uh, and also um, some unspoken tension between them that probably goes beyond uh, these levels as well. Pretty faithful adaptation of the Nella Larson book, which personally meant a lot to me. I read it in college. I haven't revisited it since. Uh, certainly I, I, it's, it's due for a revisit. Let's see, it's, it's shot in the four, three aspect ratio. It's black and white. Um, it makes you know those very strong choices uh, in terms of exactly how this is going to be framed and showcased to us, and it is uh, you know it's it's a showcase for Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega. Sound plays a significant role here. Um, it's a very relatively quiet film with pronounced uh, sounds being brought into it. You're meant to pay attention to every time sound is utilized, um, both sort of effectively and a little bit self consciously. You know, it is it is a definitely a passion project. It's clearly a sort of first film that's made with a lot of care um, and a lot of intentionality. And it is a certainly an interesting film uh, for for the moment. And it's an interesting film for Rebecca Hall, whose you know own story is not one that's been much discussed or publicized. But her her mixed um, race background being a factor here. Also interesting that she's English and she's telling an American story, an American story of, you know, of, of the sort of roots of the South uh, bearing fruit in the North. You know, there are lots of things there. It's an interesting film, you know, it's a film and a very, I'm sort of hesitant to say too much about my own opinion because I'm curious about how we're all sitting with it. It also just felt very much like in watching it play out and watching a Q&A happen and watching some Twitter responses, it felt like there's going to be a lot going on with this film in terms of the culture for the next year or so. Um, I felt a little exhausted by it, thinking about that. <laughs> um, but but also, I'm I'm eager to have conversations about the film itself, um, and and eager to have the first one here. Yeah, the faithfulness you mentioned. It's one of the most concerted attempts I've seen recently to replicate the feel of of a novella and of prose basically, and of characters as they're sitting and thinking and their intense point of view to the extent that there's so much stillness in this movie that, uh, I mean, there are almost points where it seems like it's, it's almost more 
than any given actor can put across in a way. And in, in some ways, it puts the film closer to an adaptation like Allmeyer's Folly, just in terms of how much we're, is designed to let us inhabit the you know, almost just sensory space. And from the a very opening shot, which is pretty disorienting intentionally, uh, I guess it's the perspective of someone who has fainted uh, in the heat on a New York street. And, and then we eventually uh, segue to Tessa Thompson's char- character, uh, who is struck by that so much that her own feeling of being overwhelmed almost overtakes her and she uh, takes refuge in, in a cab. And even just that interplay in those first few minutes kind of sets up, prepares us for a whole dynamic in the movie of that also is, is happens all the time in movies, but also is somehow novelistic of, you know, exchanging of glances and sensations and feelings and understandings. So it primes us with just that kind of opening opening sequence. It's, it's strange to say I almost got distracted by by that technique because it, it, it really goes all, all in on that. But anyway, I'm kind of going all over the place about technique, but that, that was just one thing I wanted to kind of single out. Yeah, I've been stewing over it a little bit, like Eric, you know, like I really love that novel, novella. I don't know. I went into it with a few things in mind, some more skeptical than others, because like passing as a concept and sort of like you know hollywood has historically had a sort of weird obsession with like mixed race people (laughs) slash like light-skinned black people and so it was kind of like an interesting thing going in to be like i wonder how rebecca hall is going to approach this material and like eric said you know to her credit she stays pretty close to the novel there are a few key things that are different. And 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 I was keep I kept thinking about this while I was watching the movie, which is like I kept trying to stop myself from um, comparing it to the novel just because for people who haven't read the novel and are just gonna see the movie, it's not gonna be helpful. And like right. their viewing of the movie is gonna be their viewing of the movie and not like, oh well, <laughs> it's not like a YouTube video where they have like a side by side comparison. I think like the more salient things that kind of came through for me are one, the presentation is, I think, intentionally stagey in a way that I think really like evokes the novel and is really good, especially the sets and the sort of acting style that everyone inhabits in this movie is very, it's like a melange of different kinds of period acting in a way that like really lifts the dialogue. I think given that we are following Tessa Thompson for like she's the main character irene is her character's name i i think ruth mega is a stronger actor i think she has greater control over what she does in general i've been following ruth mega for a while i and i think that she is like one of the most talented actors working right now and it's so apparent in this movie in a way that i've seen people talking about her on social media and it's like every time that happens i'm really happy because i think she's like so underrated <laughs> and often is used in an underrated way. I think it's fair to say that happens here too. Her character's effect on the narrative is large, but her actual like being in it is pretty sparse. And like, it's an interesting comparison with the novel again. Her character is in, in the book way more than she is in the movie, which I thought was interesting because the effect of that is like a weird sort of vacancy i like i was watching the movie with my partner and like 
she hasn't read the novel. And so afterwards I was asking her, like, what did you think of that? Like, as someone who doesn't have anything to compare it to, like, what did you think of that, of the movie itself? And she noted, like, there's a space, you know, that we talked about. There's like a silence and like quietness to the movie that I think at times makes it almost too quiet. And there's like an element missing in the Mm. characterization specifically of Irene. It's a, and it's a tough needle to thread because like the book is about race in a way that the movie sort of like extracts less of, I thought like there's less of that up front and center in the film. It's part of like the main 15 minutes, like the first 15 minutes of the movie where it's like very much like, it's as if you're watching the novel come to life you're seeing that whole thing sort of collapse. There are a few timing things like plot lines that are like collapsed in the film, but you kind of get the gist of like the racial context for this, for this movie and the time period that it's set in. And then it kind of drifts away as you go along in the movie in a way that I thought was interesting. I don't know that it's a bad thing. It's just like, I think the buzz that's going to go around this movie in terms of, how it's culture to the moment or how it's commenting on things that are still relevant will be interesting given that on the whole, like it seems like Rebecca Hall tried to make this movie quote unquote about more things than race, which is true of the novel, but by doing so she like removes some pretty salient like observations about race that are in the novel and like it's funny because the lines are there like a lot of the dialogue is just like lifted from the novel but their situation in the film makes it like deadens a lot of their impact where the characters motivations or their like sort of psychological framework is muddled to a point where you don't know if what they're saying is like meant to be like the theme or the like narrative role of that line or if it's like something else like if it's a if it's a red herring and i think Mm. and also you know i like i was already gonna be predisposed to be a little like not flippant but like a little ambivalent about the the coverage of rebecca hall's background just because i think (laughs) Obviously, like, it's a, the media is very identity obsessed when it comes to these kinds of movies where it's like, you know, who should and shouldn't make this kind of movie? And like, when it's a quote unquote black film that or a black story and it's not made by someone who is black, there's like all this sort of fastidious background context where it's like, well, this person was like, in Rebecca Hall's case, like her mom is biracial and her maternal grandfather is black. And it's like, okay, blah, blah, blah. Like I read this article before we watched the film from the LA Times about Rebecca Hall and like, and the making of passing. And there was a line in it at the very beginning that I laughed at because I was like, what is happening? Where it was like, Rebecca Hall, who presents as white. It's like, no, 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 where she's white. Like, she's like a quarter black. I get that. But like, she's white. She's never not been white. So to to have that qualifier is really weird to me. This is what's even more fascinating is that's a correction. Is that, it really? Uh, oh, my gosh. And, 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 and you can see on the on the on the site, it's it like after right after that happens in the article, there's a correction. It's not at the bottom where it says this is a correction because there was an earlier uh, edition that basically said that she identifies as white. And apparently that was a correction to say that she presents as white. Well, that, so this is like this. This enters me into like this weird bizarro like. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the show Atlanta on FX with 
yeah, yeah. Donald Glover. Yeah. There's like there's this great part. It's like a bit part where they do this episode that's like it's like a TV show, like a TV show within a TV show. It's like a it's like an interview show, and they do a segment on this black kid who just decides that he's white and he has a new name for himself and. He's like the darkest kid ever. And he's like, no, I'm, my name's Ronald, blah, blah, blah. And I'm a white man who's 35 and this kid's like 18 years old. And it's like, okay, like <laughs> the funny thing about that is, and like, I hate like drawing out, like I hate when people tell you why something's funny, but like it works for like understanding the correction in that article is like, you don't get to decide what you present as racially to other people. Like that's the whole like problem with race is like, it is a category that is foisted upon you without you having much control over it. And like, even if you as a mixed race person are like quote unquote racially ambiguous, even when you correct it, like, and tell someone about it, they're still going to have a sort of subconscious idea of what they think you are. That's going to prevail above the correction. And it has nothing um, a lot of times it has nothing to do with them being like a bad person or whatever. But the idea that Rebecca Hall is taking the like socially aware sort of self-conscious, like identity focused, like landscape that we're in and repurposing it so that she is going to be telling people that she quote unquote presents as white is so weird. Cause it's like, she's white. I don't know. Like it's fine. Like it's you, that's just the way it is. And, and to then compound that by being like, well, this is the reason why she made this movie. And like, this is the reason why she was uniquely qualified to make this movie is interesting to me because like, if she had just knocked it out of the park and like, I think she, for the most part does that stands on its own more than like, well, it was really risky for a white person to make this movie. You know, it's like, who cares? Like, how much it's like a weird one drop thing where it's like well she's a little black so that like explains why she's like able to make this movie it's like yeah that's really weird that's like a really weird like conversation to have and i can just tell that that's going to be part of it that, that's that's why you read that article the day before you saw it that's why it was published the day before you yeah saw it. that's it, an all that's a publicist arrangement to make sure that the those questions aren't asked the way that they don't want it to be asked and yeah i i just like I don't know. It's like you, you should really be focusing on making the movie that the best movie you can. This sounds like this, like Nick, you said something earlier about being pretentious. This sounds pretentious, but it's like you should really focus on making the best movie you can. And especially when it is about race or gender or sexuality or all these like class, like your own background, of course, is going to be some people are going to factor that in more than others. But at a certain point, especially, I, I really believe this with movies, if the movie is good and the movie is good enough, it's like those factors that might you think be used against you are going to be things that make the movie more anomalous as a good thing. Like, it's going to make it so that it's like, whoa, how did they make this movie? And then it's going to be like, yeah, great. Like, you were able to demonstrate that you were paying attention to more substantive things than the sort of surface like level, like branding of like why you as a white person or whatever are like able to make a movie like this. And it's interesting too, because I wonder if this narrative for Rebecca Hall will like develop as the media cycle goes on and as passing is like released wide, 
biraciality and like mixed race are nothing new. But every time we have movies like this, it's discussed as if it is. And I'm talking about this so much because like it's a thing that impedes a lot of like, I feel like black people's like viewing experience of something where it's like, there's so much media can like concern and focus on the background of the people who are making the movie and less about what the movie actually does to say nothing of the fact of like the white critics who don't like this movie are not really going to say it like Nick, like when I came on for talking about the small acts anthology, it's like, there's a certain kind of movie often about race where if a certain kind of critic doesn't outright love it and doesn't outright say like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. They're worried that they're going to be seen as racist when it could be just like, nah, like talk about why you didn't think this movie was like the greatest thing ever. That's fine too. It's not like the like industry level, like need for diversity and for inclusion also means that every review about a movie that's about these things or by this person needs to be lauded because it's like, it deserves it. It's like either the movie is good or it's not. But like, yeah. I feel like a lot of critics judge movies on the auspices of like the cultural or social capital that is going to come with the conversation and like how, how relevant it is or how timeless it is or like, you know, the conversation, quote unquote. I love all the conversations, capital C conversations that come around these movies because it's like, who's having them? It doesn't seem like, it seems like they already had the conversation, but they don't tell you about it. And so anyway, so that's like my take of like passing is like the media phenomenon that it's going to be, I'm sure, is like, it's so easy to anticipate because it's like, it happens every time a movie like this comes out. And it really detracts from talking about the movie itself. I feel like the movie itself, like as a directorial debut is so assured, so visually strong. And so it's like an actor's movie. Totally. You can totally tell like there's like such control. I feel like over each role and how people are presenting it. And it's a pretty bold choice. The way that like Rebecca Hall is having her actors sort of emulate very, like I said before, like stagey showy kind of acting that is kind of, it recreates the experience of reading the novel. Like the dialogue is so bald in the novel that like you either rewrite it or like Rebecca Hall does here, put it in the movie, but like lift it with the performance that it has. So it doesn't seem so jarring to an audience who's watching it. There's like a real loving evocation of like period design and filmmaking. That's not slavish to the time that feels really interesting. And I feel like, that might that is going to be an element that's not talked about very much because people are going to be too busy talking about like awards buzz and or like a new quote-unquote relevant timeless conversation about race and it's like okay like i don't know man like how many of these movies have been made like we do this like every two years so <laughs> i i it's very very hard to improve upon any of that Nicholas, but like one thing I just would sort of like thread some of that back into what Nick was saying before about the the, the novella quality to it, which I, th I'm, I admire, um, but also is, I've been thinking about that too, because in, to, to accurately evoke a sense of a novella, the kind of spareness of that, what seems missing from me is that there's a, there's a life to it that feels a little bit constrained. Of course, those choices are being made in terms of the 4-3, in terms of the blocking, and in terms of how it handles the dialogue, as you're saying, but there, the, what might be missing for me is just a little bit 
a further evocation of New York in that moment. Um, a little bit of sense of what might be barely glimpsed, um, you know, that the novel sort of like hints at, but we know is there. Like you, the novel may be spare, but there's all kinds of room in between dialogue and in between the pages um, that you, as you read it, you know, is just part of the world that you're being transported to. And and I think the the, the loyalty to that in the adaptation somehow leaves out the stuff in between um, that I would have liked to have seen sort of burst through a little bit. Even as spare as the novella is, there's there's so much interconnectedness on a societal social level that you can feel. Yeah. There's so much more gossip. There's so much more like the narrator is constantly talking about other people in the story, some of whom you never see. The movie makes the choice of like making it very insular, where it feels very cold. Not cold, but like there's a remove. And Irene, uh, Tessa Thompson's character is very isolated in a way that I thought was an interesting choice because the the translation in like sort of cinematic terms, especially when you have third person omniscient narration, like you do in the novel is that a lot of that just looks like her sitting around. (laughs) Like there's like, there's obviously like a below the surface performance and sort of, sort of visual keying of like what those things mean and how there's like an interiority to her character but I think it'll be interesting for people who watch the movie and then read the novel. It's like the novel is so lively. There's so much yeah. going on. There's so much internal dialogue and like, and there's so much speculation and just like active observation that on that level, the movie feels very different because it's not that it's very close. It's very, and like sort of distant at the same time. It's like a, yeah. a weird sort of muted version of the novel. And I, and you know, I wonder in, you know, subsequent interviews, like I would hope for journalists who have read the novel, if they'll ask Rebecca Hall, like, you know, what was the sort of narrative and like editorial choice to like not evoke that in the movie? Cause I feel like it is something that is so distinctive about the novel. So, yeah. It's almost like in, in in trying to replicate each of the many different sort of modes that are in the in the in the novel. There's almost you can hear the gears grinding a little in the in the movie, yeah. uh, and so you're kind of and you're losing the kind of uh, fullness of the the experience, which maybe comes out more in party scenes. Um, that kind of intensity. Yeah. So that's passing. I think we can um, wrap up there. Obviously, this is this is just the beginning <laughs> of, of, of of thinking about this and and all the all the various. Now I can't even use the word because <laughs> this discussion um, yeah, and writing. Sure. <laughs> so. Let's 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 hope it's not just the beginning for what we're expecting the, the tedium of of how we expect this to go, and also allows for right. a lot of what Nicholas is a- a- hoping for in terms of an actual conversation around this. Yeah, I hope I'm wrong. I like I hope I'm wrong here. It's just that like it's just very easy to like anticipate the kind of reaction that is going to be had. But like if the, you know, gesture of the press inclusion initiative at Sundance is any indication of like a wider industry sort of push to have different people talking about these things, then hopefully there will be a different arc to the like press observation and like interrogation of this movie. Cause like, that's the best hope, you know, is that it's not just people 
like Eric was talking about before, you know, parroting what the production company or the like publicity arm of it wants people to talk about. I feel like a lot of criticism is like that. And it's, it strains credulity to call it criticism a lot of times where it's like these publications have such like strong (laughs) relationships with certain studios to the point where it seems like, you know, they're just like doing free advertising for them. I'm sure that there is an orchestrated idea of how they want to structure or frame passing, especially with Rebecca Hall. And I think the more people push against that, the better, because I think it pushes people to be more honest. And I feel like a lot of times there's like just not the criticism isn't honest about like either what the film is doing or what the person writing about it actually felt. And I think I would just like to see more of that. Probably needless to say, and and sort of, I don't think anybody in this particular climate or few people in this particular climate really value this uh, as much as maybe I do. But I also think that ultimately the work of this filmmaker and of this film, we can see it more clearly and we can have a better sense of what it's doing and why the closer we can get to that. Yeah. You know, the idea of the conversation around the thing, serving it in some way that will help it on its path for whatever that path is in terms of theatrical release or awards or whatever um, is kind of secondary and should be secondary to how we all think of the thing itself. And let's try to make sense of the thing. Well, I, I can't think of a better note uh, to, to, to end uh, than on both of your, your uh, thoughts. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you, Eric, for taking the time. And uh, I hope you hope you'll come back. Yeah, we'll love to. Oh, we'll be back. We'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> and just quickly, Nicholas, where where can listeners uh, find your writing about about Sundance? Um, so I'll be having a dis like two dispatches. I don't know if there'll be one piece um, at Reverse Shot in the coming couple weeks. I think. And then, and Eric, you'll be writing something for Reverse Shot. Yeah, I mean the the recently relaunched make it real um we'll have a sundance themed edition of that column and possibly some other stuff will will be popping up here and there over the next bit of time but in the meantime you can find me here on your podcast (laughs) yes indeed you've been listening to the last thing i saw with your host nicholas rapold the opening music is called montserrat by the minarets For a list of movies discussed in this episode, sign up at rapold.substack.com. Thank you for listening.